Hello, and welcome to Skynet Today's Let's Talk AI podcast, where you can hear from AI researchers about what's actually going on with AI and what's just clickbait headlines. This is our latest Last Week in AI episode in which you get a quick digest of last week's AI news, as well as a bit of discussion between two AI researchers as to what we think about this news. To start things off, we'll hand it off to Daniel Bashir to summarize what happened in AI last week. We'll be back in just a few minutes to dive deeper into these stories and give our takes. Hello, this is Daniel Bashir here with our weekly news summary. This week, we'll discuss two language models, US AI strategy, and AI's role in the loneliness epidemic. In the latest demonstration of GPT-3's wide-ranging potential, OpenAI researchers this week unveiled DALI, a neural network that creates images from text captions. As Synced Review reports, the name is a portmanteau of artist Salvador Dali and Pixar's WALL-E. The network itself is a 12 billion parameter version of GPT-3 trained to generate images from text descriptions using a dataset of text image pairs. It can create anthropomorphized versions of animals and objects, combine unrelated objects in plausible ways, render text, and transform images. In one example, Dolly created an avocado-shaped armchair. OpenAI also introduced CLIP, a neural network that efficiently learns visual concepts from natural language supervision. In other language model news, researchers affiliated with Uber and CMU developed a machine learning model that emphasizes positive and polite responses. When we use tools like Cortana, Siri, or Alexa, we expect information, but we also generally expect the responses to be socially acceptable. As VentureBeat reports, the researchers found their model could vary the politeness of its responses while preserving their meaning. But it's not all good news. The researchers noted their measurements might be off, given that the model was not so successful in maintaining overall positivity. This sort of research will be important as more and more interactions such as customer service calls will likely be automated, but it certainly has a long way to go. Our next story takes a different turn. Low-income commuters who rely on public transit face myriad difficulties, and some researchers want to ease their commute by harnessing AI. Congress and the NSF are ready to support more such projects. The NSF-funded Cloud Bank subsidizes access to commercial cloud services, while the National AI Initiative Act of 2020, which recently became law, aims to bolster AI activities at more than a dozen agencies. As Science Magazine reports, the act includes directives to study how to create a national research cloud building on CloudBank and calls for an expansion of a network of research institutes launched last summer and the creation of a White House AI office and advisory committee to monitor these efforts. The act codifies current efforts by federal agencies and gives them a to-do list. It endorses the NSF's network of seven AI research institutes launched last summer. There is a debate over how to grow the initiative without hurting core NSF research programs, but the two programs represent an important step in the U.S.'s long-term investment in AI research. And finally, one of the most important conversations in the U.S. in the past few years has been the ongoing loneliness epidemic. While early chatbots were never very convincing, the more advanced chatbots today powered by AI can mimic genuine conversation and might be beginning to play a role in the response. Replica, a chatbot created to be a genuine companion to users, has become a particularly popular example. 
As Input Magazine reports, the popularity might be attributed in part to its romantic roleplay functions, which can be unlocked via interaction. The technology has undergone improvement over the years, including updates that incorporate therapy-style techniques and psychoanalytical sound bites. There are plenty of privacy concerns with such chatbots, and certain features might strike some as creepy, but many see loneliness as a lucrative market. Such motivation is likely to drive innovation in the market for chatbots and other digital companions in the future. That's all for this week's news roundup. Stay tuned for a more in-depth discussion of recent events. Thanks, Daniel, and welcome back, listeners. Now that you've had the summary of last week's news, feel free to stick around for a more laid-back discussion about this news by two AI researchers. I'm Sharon, a fourth-year PhD student in the machine learning group working with Andrew Ng. I do research on generative models, improving generalization of neural networks, and applying machine learning to tackling the climate crisis, as well as to medicine. And with me is my co-host. Hi there, I am Andre Kurnkov, a third-year PhD student at the Stanford Vision and Learning Lab, advised by Silvio Sorese. In my research, I focus mostly on learning algorithms for robotic manipulation and reinforcement learning. And we will be giving our takes on news as usual. Uh, we will avoid all the uh, craziness of news that we were just talking about that's happening in the US and as usual focus on AI. So hopefully for your listeners, you know, this will be a nice break from the ridiculousness of a world and just uh, look into AI and what's happening there. And we can start with uh, something I do think is fun and will be fun to discuss, which is the latest from OpenAI. So we have a couple articles here, one from the Technology Review titled, This Avocado Armchair Could Be the Future of AI, another one titled, For Status Trick, OpenAI's GPT-3 Generates Images from Text Captions. And yeah, these two summarize uh, the newest from OpenAI, where they showed really impressive new models that took text and uh, could create plausible images. So you could take descriptions of, as the title said, avocado armchairs and actually produce images of plausible looking avocado armchairs. And as usual with OpenAI, the trick was basically massive scale. So they took a giant, giant data set of uh, images with captions, and they applied something like GPT-3, a very similar technology um, that isn't very technically novel, but is just really, really big. Like they used a ton of compute, it probably cost millions to train. But as a result, they were able to produce pretty novel, pretty impressive results, even compared to the state of art. So that was my impression. Uh, that was seemingly the impression of people on Twitter. I don't know, Sharon, did you see this? And what was your take? I was really impressed. I thought it was cool. Um, the avocado chair is, it's like, <laughs> I think people are most impressed by it because those chairs really do look like avocados, uh, which is, you know, kind of like new design that the model is creating. And what's really fascinating is that you can't find these chairs 
through a Google search. So, I mean, now you can, and now you'll probably get influxed by Dolly outputs, uh, the model's outputs, but yeah, uh, but before um, you couldn't find those, not, not easily at least. And so it seems like they're actually generating something very new and, and understanding uh, semantically you know, the different concepts that are coming into play with the word avocado chair, or even more complex sentences, like a painting of a capybara sitting in a field at sunrise, you know, like very, very complex sentences also um, have been able to be visualized. And I think this is really cool because it makes me think, it makes me think about um, an idea I've had for a while, which is, you know, the future of storytelling maybe is a child telling their own story and saying a sentence and then seeing it visualized or even the parents doing that, you know, and as you come up with a story, you both get, you know, these illustrations from a model like Dolly. And then maybe if you're the one telling the story, you maybe also get some suggestions from GPT-3 on what to say next. And I think that is really cool. Um, and hopefully future. And of course, these are just suggestions and not, not everything. And so, um, I think that could be a cool future. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. It's super fun. And it's super fun to see all the various images they're able to produce. Uh, it's able to do kind of very accurate things. So usually with a lot of existing AI systems, you expect things to be blurry or maybe you could see some artifacts. But uh, when you have examples like, uh, for instance, a cross-section view of a walnut, the images that it produces, and there's you know many different takes, you know, look pretty good. They look like cross-section views of a walnut. Um, and that's on top of a second announcement. So what was extra cool is they have two results that they sort of grouped together. Uh, the first one was Dali, which is combining Wally with Dali, the artist. And then there's also Clip, uh, which is contrastive language image pre-training, which is essentially taking a pretty existing idea of instead of having um, image recognition being done with a set of classes. So you, um, you know, you, in, in many systems, you have like a thousand classes of dog, you know, car, building, whatever. And then the image recognition system tells you which of these things is in the image. The idea with clip is something that people have done before, but they really scaled up of matching text to an image. So it's able to uh, actually categorize the recognition based on matching text to the image. And again, they are, were able to show that this approach is much more robust and is able to generalize to much more than previous systems have for ImageNet and so on. So yeah, a couple of really cool uh, announcements and results from OpenAI. I know the AI community in general has been a little bit bitter with OpenAI and HR and PR and how they kind of uh, tried to get a lot of uh, hype around their results, I think. But with these latest results and also results they have had before with GPT-3, I think there's been an example where they seemingly haven't hyped up things too much and we're pretty conservative and the results actually do speak for themselves. Um, at least for me. And I think for many, maybe including you, Sharon, I think so. It's much better than the Rubik's cube, uh, situation. 
Um, I think they learned to turn it, tone it down a little bit. I think that's good. Um, I think they still do really awesome work and this is clearly one of them. I don't, I don't recall. I think for Clip, uh, there is an open source code base, but I, I believe for Dolly, there isn't one just yet. Um, hopefully that'll change soon. Uh, but yeah, I think it's um, very, very cool, uh, and I and I hope to see more of this. And I know that I think Ilya and and some other folks at OpenAI have been talking about you know language and images that so we should be really combining these. Um, and so this is a testament to to really pushing on that. And I've I've heard them talk about you know wanting to push on that for a bit. So it, they did deliver, and I and I and I love it. <laughs> um, yeah, and I can't wait to see like what <laughs> what it'll pop out once we start inputting all sorts of things because I imagine that these are, you know, in, in some ways maybe a little bit cherry picked, but not entirely because we do see a lot of the outputs. So yeah, fair. yeah, it, you have to wonder they already are productizing GP three and are saying you can have it as an API, and these you know at least Dali especially where you can get images of you know, almost anything. It does have limitations where you can't give it too much detail. If you have like 10 objects or whatever in an image, it uh, does struggle. But if it's, you know, one or two things, it actually does surprisingly well. And if they go with the same approach of trying to productize and trying to provide it as a service, um, it would be very interesting to see if, if there are applications and also how they build on this with future work, uh, because this is, I think, the first from them on this kind of language plus image idea. And even though, as usual, they're mainly just scaling up existing ideas, this is another example from them that just scaling up and just going to, you know, really big models, really big data can result in interesting results that are novel and, you know, is a research avenue worth exploring, which I suppose it's for the benefit of the AI community that OpenAI is doing it. Yes, I think so. Well, on a different note, so moving from maybe the private-ish sector is what I would call open AI, to the public sector, uh, there's an article titled Summary of AI Provisions from the National Defense Authorization Act of 2021 from HAI, um, the, the Stanford Center for Human-Centered AI. And I believe there's also um, an article that the DOD did uh, put out uh, or the government did put out um, ab about this. And so this is basically summarizing efforts uh, that the government will make around uh, AI, uh, specifically, uh, this definitely includes the Department of Defense um, and how uh, they want to push forward on AI efforts. Um, from what I gathered, it was fairly broad and uh, general. Um, so it just seems like, you know, the Trump administration right now that did sign off on this does seem to want to push on this, um, especially when it comes to a national defense strategy. Any thoughts on this, Andre? Yeah, this is an interesting summary. It has a lot of tidbits that are kind of neat. So, I mean, there is some pretty uh, kind of vague things like... Um, for instance, the NDAA establishes a board of advisors for the JAC to provide an independent strategic advice and technical expertise on AI and assist Pentagon leadership in developing strategic level guidance on AI-related hardware procurement and supply chain issues. So really kind of technical stuff. 
but there's also, I don't know, some, some interesting things like the Secretary of Defense is to assess whether the department has the ability, resourcing, and expertise to ensure that any AI technology acquired by the department is ethically and responsibly developed, which we've talked a lot about on this <clears throat> podcast. I believe also as part of this, uh, something that HAI cares about, there is some provisions for working on a national AI cloud uh, to benefit different universities and really the public sector to be able to keep up with the ever-increasing compute needs of AI research. As we just mentioned, with uh, OpenAI, definitely having more compute is useful. And uh, there's also a note here that the director of NSF is to fund AI research and education activities to include competitive awards, grants, or prize competitions for institutions of higher education and nonprofits. So, um, oh, that specifically contribute to the development of trust for VAI and other scientific discovery and societal challenges. So, you know, more money for grad students sounds like, uh, which is certainly good. Um, yeah, I think obviously it's broad. There's a lot of details here, but it's interesting to see how policy can be passed. And I think it's, it's also a testament, at least with respect to the national AI cloud, how, uh, conversations from academia and from institutions like the human centered AI Institute can actually make their way into policy eventually. And, um, yeah, it's a sign that these sort of like conversations are on ethical AI and, you know, what should be funded, how do we keep up with computing can be made into something real and, and not just be conversation topics. Uh, that's what I gather from all this, all this hype. The national AI cloud, I find really interesting. I actually see it as a, um, very interesting tax on, uh, various cloud providers. Cause I believe the major cloud providers are contributing, you know, credits towards this. And so in a way it's like a tax on them towards the public sector or towards academia, towards others that are less resourced, uh, than they are. Uh, and so I, I that's, that's how I see it. And I think that's actually kind of interesting, um, an easy way to apply that tax, which I think they are open to, um, in fact, I mean, they seem to be, um, and that seems to be pushing forward. So I think that's quite interesting um, as a as like a government strategy. Yeah, another tidbit here is um, that this uh, act uh, stated that a new national AI initiative office is to be established by the director of the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy. And actually, we got this news, I think, like yesterday, that this office has already been established and it has some sort of neat logo with something that looks like a neural net. So there's now a whole office, uh, you know, uh, specifically for AI, a new National AI Initiative Office. And given the size of AI and given the momentum that we have and all the uh, applications and industry and all the discussions we've had about needing to regulate um, facial recognition, needing to regulate self-driving cars, needing to regulate and kind of direct the development of all this AI technology, it seems like that's definitely a good idea to have in-house expertise on uh, national AI and um, kind of have 
people in the government that are more expert activists and can actually guide, you know, the awards of grants and different uh, policy issues and so on. So yeah, cool to see all this happen in the public, even if uh, it's happening just at the end of uh, this one of the administration and we'll have to see um, how much of this actually comes to pass, I guess, as time passes. Right, definitely. And so on our next article, uh, so moving on from government and um, back into maybe startup land and the private sector, our next article is AI algorithms detect diabetic eye disease inconsistently. And this is from the Hindustan Times. And so as the title suggests, uh, researchers basically compared the algorithms uh, against diagnostic expertise of, and these are algorithms from five different companies trying to do diabetic eye disease. Uh, and they found that the results were inconsistent and did not live up to the expectations uh, that they had set in their clinical trials and clinical studies. Um, I will say for one, I'm not super surprised. Uh, I'm glad people are taking it to the next level from from, let's say, you know, paper research land to clinical trial land, which is one step more, uh, but now again, to the real world, to, to be robust to all sorts of different types of uh, patients and screening, uh, screening mechanisms. Like it, it is very, very hard for these algorithms to generalize in that way. Um, I can see that. And I will say I'm not super surprised. Uh, and I hope that these Companies are not uh, overclaiming that much. Uh, these companies span, you know, all geographic locations from the United States to China to France to Portugal. Uh, so I hope I hope they're um, they they know that their performance isn't uh, perfect and doesn't generalize even. Um, say when analyzing from patient populations in Seattle and Atlanta, uh, for example, which is which is which they state in the article. Um, and that's concerning because it's not just, you know, okay, this is a completely different distribution necessarily. Yeah, exactly. Um, <clears throat> the lead researcher here is Aaron Lee, the assistant professor of, of ophthalmology at the University of Washington School of Medicine. So we are actually getting, you know, actual medical researchers examining these algorithms. And as you said, uh, it was highlighted by him that it's uh, alarming that these algorithms are not performing consistently, uh, being used in different parts of the world. And um, there was one algorithm that performed about as well as human screeners, so it's not all bad news. There was kind of a mix of results where three did reasonably well and one did worse. Uh, but in general, it's another sign that for a lot of hyped up applications of AI where I think uh, applications to this in particular diabetes care was one of the things that have been sort of fast-tracked along with some other medical applications and you know as we know there's already five companies doing it so people are trying to commercialize it pretty quickly um, and then, yeah so it's I would say maybe not too surprising like you said but nevertheless concerning that uh, these companies can, ha <clears throat> can have clinical studies that don't 
seem to hold up uh, when examined independently. And so we can only hope that uh, there are independent review mechanisms for um, certifying technology, paying for technology, and for these sort of algorithms to be deployed out there in the real world, uh, and in particular on you know different people, as pointed out here. Yeah, so that's pretty much all that there is to say there. Kind of disappointing, not too surprising. Uh, let's move on to something a little more interesting, or at least not of a bummer, uh, which is from a Medium article titled Research Highlights from an Unprecedented Year at NeurIPS. So NeurIPS happened last month, and uh, this is kind of a summary of a lot of the discussions there. Um, I found it particularly interesting, and I sort of attended, it was open, and it's unprecedented in the sense of it was a virtual conference. So there were something like 22,000 attendees, you know, virtually attending. And when you say virtual attending, that means that you can watch talks, you can have little Q&A sessions, you uh, had sort of poster sessions in this gathered town to the interface. Um, yeah, so it was definitely unprecedented in terms of the scale and in terms of the overall effort to bring a conference fully online of this size. Um, personally, I yeah only watched some of it. I did watch the keynote by Charles Isbell titled, You Can't Escape Hyperparameters and Latent Variables, Machine Learning as an Engineering Enterprise. And it, it was really interesting in that he addressed kind of a discussion that has been going on in the AI community about needs to uh, attend to implicit bias, uh, that the entire learning pipeline matters, not just data, but algorithms. Uh, and, and yeah, generally being very mindful of, of how we deploy um, algorithms and AI now that it's being, you know, impactful and actually leading to companies as we just saw with the diabetic case. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, there's a lot else in this article summarizing different workshops, different um, papers. I don't know, uh, Sharon, I don't know, have you attended New Europe's in any capacity or is anything jumping out at you from this summary? I actually only attended an after party, <laughs> which, which, by the way, is consistent with how I attend the usual <laughs> nerds. So I will say that it was, I, I was completely consistent with myself. <laughs> um, but uh, reading through this summary, I did find a lot of things very interesting. Um, one paper I really like is, do adversarial robust ImageNet models transfer better? And the answer is yes, uh, robust models actually do transfer better. And I think that will... That may, I may want to leverage that, you know, when I'm doing transfer learning. So that seems really interesting. Um, I, I, and uh, another paper that I really liked and had seen before NeurIPS uh, was the a paper from NVIDIA on GANs and how they, uh, I, I believe was, they were just using a semi-supervised learning for GANs and they also had, um, a, an adaptive discriminator such that the discriminator would 
you know, um, it, its task would be either harder or easier over time, depending on how it was doing. Um, and I thought that made a lot of sense. I thought both of those things made a lot of sense, data augmentation plus an adaptive discriminator. Um, I, I think both of those have always made a lot of sense for GANs. And I've actually thought about, you know, why, why isn't there work in this? So I'm really glad to see NVIDIA tackle it, uh, even more so than others, because I think when they tackle it, they really... They really do a crazy job of like throwing a lot of compute at it and showing what something to the extreme could do. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think it's almost uh, talking about New Europe's and research highlights. I don't know how they chose these research highlights because it is a massive conference. Uh, there's probably, I don't know how many, probably eight, 800, 1,000 papers, something on that scale, like a ridiculous <laughs> amount of research, Yeah. right? So um, definitely need to pick out a few things. Um, there was also the Expo Workshop Machine Learning at Netflix, where there was discussion of how Netflix uses machine learning to entertain the world, and, and there was discussion of how it is progressized uh, in industrial applications. And then there were other researchers there from Google, Apple, and Facebook talking about industry. So definitely, if you fully attended uh, New Europe's and gave it your all, you could have derived a lot of interesting uh, results as usual. I did feel a bit sad because I was actually at last year's New Europe's attending a workshop, and I was able to attend the in-person poster sessions and attend the in-person keynotes. So trying to have some of that via the virtual interface was still not quite the same. I mean, it's in a sense a lot better uh, because you can have, you know, anyone attend. It costs, I think, very little, maybe like $25 for a student. Uh, so you didn't need to travel, which makes it much more open. And um, yeah, I, I do have to wonder if, if going forward we'll do some sort of hybrid model where we have local events combined with virtual uh, events like we had last year or and yeah how this will go forward i i hope it's not going to be continually fully virtual because in the end it's, it's just not quite the same uh, i don't know have you attended any other virtual conferences sharon and, and what was your feeling there I have. Um, I did attend iClear last year, um, and uh, it was interesting. I mean, I was hosting a workshop, and it was, uh, to say the least, a bit stressful. So I only got that part of it, I think, because there's a lot of like logistical things we had to deal with. Um, I don't know. I've heard a lot of good feedback from people or just people being surprised that, you know, it might be actually easier to meet certain people and find certain people. Um so I, I thought that was quite interesting. Uh, I did not, I have not been good about attending uh, social events during the pandemic, I admit. <laughs> um, I have, you know, a few things that I do that are social, but mostly I've been very focused on work. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think it's, it's weird uh, browsing sort of something on the scale of New Europe's or iClear or CDPR from your computer it seems like much more of a difficult task somehow like definitely uh, walking around going to talks and going to 
postal session, somehow you are physically limited. So you have to sort of move around and attend the talks that you find interesting and, you know, try and see all the posters that you can. Whereas when you have just a website and you have access to everything, all the talks, all the sessions, all the posters, uh, it can be overwhelming and it actually is harder to take in as much, uh, I think. And that was my experience of New Europe's. But at the same time, as you say, uh, some things like being able to just randomly meet people and talk, um, does work surprisingly well, especially if you kind of break it up into smaller rooms, uh, that are focused on different topics. If you have different workshops, uh, things like Gavertown, where you have little 2d avatars and video and audio do work to some extent. So it seems likely that, you know, things will not be the same to some extent, at least physical conferences will have a virtual counterpart possibly, or, or will go still fully virtual. It'll be interesting to see what the future holds. Right. Absolutely. And I think it also is quite interesting that it's, I feel really compelled and maybe it's just FOMO when it's in person and I really want to go attend an event, but when it's virtual, it's almost a different dynamic. And I feel like I don't want to be stuck staring at my computer for even longer. And I don't, and I feel like I'm not moving either. You know, it has nothing to do with the meeting people part almost. It's almost just like the, the actions or lack of actions I'm taking while doing that, uh, that compel me to, to not want it as much. Yeah. I, Personally, I want things to go in VR. That's my dream. I want to <laughs> have things be in 3D and then I can walk around and, you know, I can take breaks and it's, it's not in front of a computer, as you say. Uh, but uh, that has yet to come to pass. Uh, I think there was like one VR conference about VR, but all the other ones have been on a 2D interface. Still, it, it was a huge effort on the part of the organizers and, and they did seemingly do a great job in making it happen. So, uh, good sign that, you know, for the most part researchers adopted and, and were able to continue meeting up and presenting work and, and the usual. All right. And with that, thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Skynet Today's Let's Talk AI podcast. You can find the articles we discussed here today and subscribe to our weekly newsletter with similar ones at skynettoday.com. Subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and don't forget to leave us a rating if you like the show. Be sure, Be to, sure tune to tune in, in next week. Aww.